you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 49? Isaiah 49, as we come back to our study through this wonderful prophet. Let me remind you, because I'm preaching through the series and I sometimes forget what's going on in the book. <laughs> so let me just remind you where we're at. If you remember Isaiah prophesied particularly to four kings in Judah before the exile, but now here in chapters 40 through 66, he's concerned with the time beyond the reign of those particular kings. These chapters, you remember, look forward to a day coming 100 years in the future when Babylon would take the people of Judah into exile, and a time even further in the future when God would send Cyrus, king of Persia, to, to defeat the Babylonians and to return Judah to the land of promise. So Isaiah then was, was prophesying about the events leading up to things like the book of Nehemiah. Um, and, and yet Isaiah is also prophesying even beyond that. He was looking forward to a greater Jerusalem that would come into the world through the work of the promised Messiah, the deliverer who would rescue God's people from more than simply political exile. And the surprise of this section of Isaiah, you remember, is that the deliver, it, deliverer is described as what? As a servant. A suffering servant we will even see in coming weeks. And the four servant songs of Isaiah are here in this section. And here, these verses that we're going to look at today from Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 14 through chapter 50, verse 3, this passage is, is sandwiched right in between the second and the third servant songs. Uh, we said last Sunday that the servant song, the second one that we looked at in chapter 49, said to our hearts, sing for joy. Sing for joy because the servant has been sent to bring all people light and comfort. The truth of who the servant would be for his people and in turn the truth of who Jesus is for his followers causes us to sing for joy. Uh, into our darkness he has brought light. And into our pain, he has brought comfort and compassion. And yet, look at how the next section of Isaiah begins. Look at chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion, God's people, Israel, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. The, the Lord has just called all of creation to rejoice at the comfort and compassion that he will show his people through the promised servant. But his people feel lost in their pain. They are overwhelmed by their situation and they doubt the Lord. I came across this quote recently. It said, never in the history of calming down has anyone calmed down by being told to calm down. I think that's probably true. We see that playing out in the division and the debates of our day. And in a similar way, I think it's also true that when we're in deep darkness or blinding pain or complete frustration, the call to sing for joy can feel more like condemnation than encouragement. I don't know about you, but I've heard preachers all my life say things like, if that doesn't get you excited, then there's something wrong with you. And then I wonder if there's something wrong with me. The command to be happy or to sing for joy or get excited can sometimes not lift, but actually further crush our spirits. 
This is exactly what Israel says about this specific situation in Babylon. Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4, a familiar psalm. It says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? So Israel's, Israel's objection in verse 14, it doesn't come out of nowhere. They are certainly in large, the, the situation that they're in is certainly in large part, part the result of their own sinfulness, of their nearsightedness, of their lack of faith. But it also flows from the fact that Israel had experienced deep pain. They're in exile in their minds, the Lord has forsaken them. The Lord has forgotten about them. He's cast them off. The situation felt beyond repair, and it was hard for them not to sense that the Lord had rejected them. The promises of peace and joy and comfort from the servant, they were glorious. But Israel felt like they were just out of reach, like a glass on the top shelf in the back corner that you're trying to get to, but you just can't get a hold of it. Sometimes when we look at who we are or where we've ended up, the situation feels like broken walls. It feels like exile. And we just can't get our hands on songs of joy, no matter how hard we reach for them. Life can be heartbreaking, can't it? And even if the heartbreak is the result of our own hard-headed, hard-headedness, it's still difficult. And all of the ruins that we see in us and around us, they make us hesitant to hope, hesitant to, to try again, even hesitant to trust God. Beyond our situations, we could look at the people of God. We could look at the church and we might have little hope. We wonder if the church has been forgotten and forsaken by God. Is the church rejected and beyond rescue? Are we too divided? Are we too inwardly focused? Are we too deaf to the needs and concerns of those who think differently than us? But of course, we would never tell anyone those thoughts, especially at church. Those doubts and discouragements, they feel wrong. They, they feel weak. And so we're often hesitant and reticent to voice the sadness and the struggle that we feel. So we smile on Sundays when we really would just rather scream or cry or both. <laughs> but the writers of scriptures, especially the Psalms, are, are not cautious in revealing their struggles to understand God's ways or to trust his promises. They voice them loudly and unreservedly and sometimes pretty shockingly. And therefore they invite us, God's word invites us to do the same, to voice our struggles, to voice our doubts. I wonder if our unwillingness to, to speak out our doubts and our frustration is maybe not the result of, of us thinking we'll be judged by others, but maybe it's the result of a small and anemic view of who God is. We think our Heavenly Father is going to respond to our lack of faith the way that we respond when people doubt or question us, namely with anger or disappointment or frustration or a cold shoulder. Hmm. But God is, God is not petty, is he? God is not petty and he's not easily offended. His view of himself is not altered by our small thoughts of him. He can handle whatever we might throw at him. And here in Isaiah 49, the Lord doesn't respond to the doubts of his people with harshness, but rather with comfort and compassion. 
and truth spoken in love. He uses pictures of grace to help his people see that he is for them, no matter what Zion might look like or how depressed they might be. He is faithful. His words are are centered on pictures of loving relationship and unfailing commitment. And they lead us to see that when we struggle to trust God's plan for us as individuals or for us as a people, his word says this, in moments of doubt, rest in who God is to his people. That'll be our big idea for today. Sounds a lot like a lot of other Isaiah big ideas, but I'm okay with that because I still need to hear it. In moments of doubt, in moments of doubt and struggle and uncertainty, rest, rest in who God is to his people. So this morning, I want us to see Israel's doubts And in seeing their doubts, I want us to see our own. And as we see our our doubts and Israel's doubts, I want us then to hear and see who God is in his loving and very firm words to us. So with those things in mind, this big idea and moments of doubt, rest in who God is to his people, and with the thought of finding out what the doubts are and finding out who God is in response to them, let's read our passage, Isaiah 49 beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Sing for joy, O heavens. Oh, that's verse 13, sorry. Verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God responds, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Chapter 50, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? 
Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Let's pray once more. Father, this is your word, and we are helpless apart from your spirit, opening it up to to us. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to behold wonderful things from your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. In their doubts, God's people offer a number of objections to the promises of the Lord to save and redeem and comfort them. And the Lord responds with the truth of who he is. In in 49, 14 through 23, God's people say, we are forsaken and forgotten. That's the first thing I want us to think about. We are forsaken and forgotten is what Israel says in verses 14 through 23. This objection in verse 14 is reminiscent. If you go back to chapter 40, verse 27, when God's people respond to God's words of comfort by saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. What does God say then to us when we feel forsaken and forgotten? When we are surrounded by people but feel alone and feel misunderstood. When we feel abandoned or we feel that we as a people have been forsaken. Well, he begins with, with one of the most tender illustrations of his character in all of the scriptures, as far as I, I can tell. He asks two questions, twin questions. The first, can a mother forget her nursing child? And the second, can she feel no love for the child she has born? My wife was nursing James before I left to come here today, and I asked her, can a mother forget her nursing child? And she said, not for long. <laughs> Could we imagine a more a, a, a deeper and more personal relationship than the one between an infant and a mother? Could, could that mom forget about her child or feel no affection for him or her? I've heard it said that you, you never stop being a parent. Uh, the older my children get, the more I'm seeing that to be true. I've seen that in the lives of, of some of the members of this church as well. A mother or a father's heart is always tied to their children. Matyar says of this relationship that it's one of intimate dependence and shared life. Intimate dependence and shared life. A mother and her nursing infant are quite literally linked to one another. But even, more than, even when that physical link is broken, that affection and that bond, just it remains. The picture then says that, that God's love and commitment to his people is the same as and even greater than the deepest and most personal and intimate human relationship that we can think of. Because, he says, there are extreme circumstances when a mother does forget or forsake her child. But the Lord says that he will never forsake those who are his. He is always attentive to the cries of his children. And he is always ready to sustain and to help us no matter what. 
the illustrations go on. And in verse 16, it says that the Lord has engraved his people on the palms of his hands, which in fact, most commentators say, seems to be a reference to tattoos on his hands. Maybe you have a tattoo. Maybe not many in this group, but throughout history, people have had a, a tattoo. They put it on of, of someone that they love to mark themselves that they will not forget this person. And we're told that the Lord has permanently marked his hands so that he will never forget his people. Like a keepsake in your house that reminds you of a loved one that has passed. Or like a, a wedding ring that reminds a husband of his wife. The Lord has permanently marked himself so that he will never forsake us. He, he says that the walls of Jerusalem, broken down and destroyed, are never, are, are ever before his eyes. And he looks to, to build them back up again so that he can protect and guard his people. He has not forgotten about them. No matter what it looks like, it looks like Jerusalem is forsaken, but their walls are always on God's heart. Well, the picture changes again, but it stays with this theme of family. Verses 17 through 20 describe a, an ingathering, a, a great reunion of the, the family of God streaming back into Jerusalem. Yes, but into something greater than the Jerusalem rebuilt uh, after the exile. You'll remember how in the book of Ezra, there were those who had seen Solomon's temple. And when they saw the small foundation of the, the rebuilt temple, how small it was in comparison, they wept. But the gathering described here is going to require a temple and a city beyond anything Israel had ever seen. All of the waste and all of de the desolation and all of the, the devastation of Jerusalem that caused God's people to say that they were forsaken would become greater and more beautiful than it had ever been. And the people of God would overwhelm the city so that the place would be too small for them. It's too narrow for us. There's too many of us. We need to expand the walls. Israel, who had thought that they were forsaken and forgotten, was also convinced that they were bereaved and barren, according to verse 21, that they could never be restored to their former size and glory because they were not growing. They weren't having any children. Some of you know the pain of longing for children and never having them, and little else can feel like being forgotten or forsaken by the Lord. And yet God is described here, talking about, God is describing this, this ever-growing family. And in that he's describing, he's going back. He's going back to a promise, a promise made to Abraham and his wife, Baron Sarah, a promise of children who would outnumber the sand of the seashore. Did you go to the beach this summer? I know the Pedrosas just got back. Uh, did you count the sand while you were there? Nathan, did you count how many grains of sand were there? No? Uh, if you did, we're told that God's people, when he gathers all of them into the new Jerusalem, will outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. We'll see that in a moment, just as it was with Sarah, that the only way that this could happen, the only way that Sarah, Baron Sarah, could have a, give birth to Isaac is if the Lord did it. The only way that, that God can fulfill that kind of great promise is, is on his own. He's not dependent on us. God brings fruitfulness and joy to barrenness and sorrow because as he told Sarah, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But before we think about how he does this, note first in verses 22 and 23, 
that we're reminded of what we've seen in the servant songs, namely that this ingathering, this great family reunion will not just be of people from Israel, but rather all the nations are going to come. You see that in verse 22, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. Back in chapter 49, verse 11, it said a highway will need to be built to accommodate everyone streaming into the city. This is the fastest growing city ever. You know, I always have those lists, the fastest growing city in America. Jerusalem will, the new Jerusalem will be the fastest growing city. We'll have to build highways to get everybody in there because everyone's going to be streaming in. And as they come, these are not children birthed by Israel, but they are carried in by kings and queens who are foster parents to them. What an image. The, the nations will come to Jerusalem, bringing children to come and to be a part of this city. And kings and queens are going to bow down before the Lord as the only true and living God. That's the picture of the new Jerusalem. Israel will return and the nations will arrive. And, and we have said that this is all the Lord's doing. But how? How is he going to accomplish that? For Israel, who feels forsaken and forgotten, these declarations of love and of faithfulness, they're helpful, but they also want to know, how is God to, going to accomplish all of these things? Are these empty promises? Are these overtures of love with nothing to back them up? Well, verse 22 hints at the answer as to how God is going to do it. It says in verse 22, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And in response to the lifting up of this signal, the nations will come. In one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams, Ray Kinsella is told, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and as the movie closes, there are streams of cars driving towards the baseball field that he built in the middle of his cornfield in Iowa. The, the field served as this signal that called out to people to come. So what's the Lord going to raise to bring the nations to him and to his heavenly Jerusalem? Not a baseball field, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and because these verses are sandwiched right between two songs of the coming servant, the better question than what would be who? Who is the signal that will be raised up? And the answer is the servant. And the servant is Jesus. In John 12, after some Greeks, some Gentiles were brought to Jesus, desiring to, to learn from him, we read this, John 12, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Jesus. Jesus is the signal that will be raised and draw the nations to himself. Jesus, who says he will never leave us or forsake us, who longs to shield us like a mother hen covers over her chicks when they're in danger. Jesus is the one who has engraved us on the palms of his hands. And as he held them out to Thomas, when he doubted, he holds them out to us in our doubts and he shows us the scars left by the nails and proves that he will never forget us. Jesus is the signal lifted up on the cross. And from that day until now, he has been drawing all people to himself to find life and to find peace in him. He is the only one that can give it to us. And the call of the cross is a call to faith. It's a call to trust. Verse 23 ends with these words, those who wait for me. Remember, that's a signal. Those who trust in me shall not be put to shame. The good news of Jesus is that he has done all that needs to be done to save our souls and to bring us into the heavenly Jerusalem for all eternity. He has done it. He has lived the perfect life of righteousness, righteousness for us. He has died in our place so that as we confess our sins, our sins, even of, of doubting him and his love, as we cast ourselves in faith on the one who has died for us, we are saved and we are made new. I would say to you, if you have never come to Jesus, he is calling to you. He is tender in his care. In his love, he has written your name on his hands. He has been lifted up to die and he has been resurrected to life so that all people might find life in him. And for we who are children of God, when we feel forsaken and forgotten, we look to the signal. We look to the servant. We look to Jesus. We listen to his word and we rest in the truth of who he is and all that he has done. And we know that we are not forgotten. We are not forsaken. No, we are, we are deeply loved. We are cared for. We are graven on the palms of Jesus's hands. Now, how do we keep these truths before us? Because we all start to doubt. And when we start doubting, we don't remember any of this stuff, do we? Well, we read God's word every day. We make it a habit. That sounds mundane. We don't read God's word to check it off the list, though. We read it so that we're reminded of the truth of who God is, even when we're struggling to trust him. And we memorize God's word, not so that we can impress others with how much we know, but rather so that we can recall it to mind when we feel forgotten. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, wouldn't those be wonderful words to speak to your heart in moments of despair? When you feel forsaken and forgotten, you would say, you know, can, can a mother forget a nursing child? Can, can she forget the children that she's had? Has my mom forgotten me? No. And even if she did, the Lord's never going to forget me. The Lord will never forsake me. He's graven me on the palms of his hands. Wouldn't that lift us out of doubt? Wouldn't that help us to not feel forsaken? And we speak to one another too. We, we don't give people pat answers when they feel forsaken. So often when people are struggling with doubt, we just say, oh, it'll be okay. You'll get through this. What if instead we came and, and we, we painted a picture of the deep love of the Father for them and the powerful work of what Jesus has accomplished for them? What if they, when they were struggling with that, we said, hey, let's read Isaiah 49 together. Let me tell you about the love of God for you. The lies in your head need to die in the light of the truth of the love of God for you. Could we even allow this picture of the Lord to help us pray for our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan and Haiti? Could we ask that they would not feel forgotten or forsaken by the Lord? 
but that they would know his, his deep love for them, that they would look to Jesus and would find hope in the fact that there is a new Jerusalem coming, a city whose foundation cannot be shaken, a city, according to Revelation 21, 25, where the gates never need to be closed because there are no enemies that will ever come into it, that that's where our hope is found. Well, God answers his people's cries of being forsaken and forgotten. He tells them who he is. He speaks of his deep love that he has committed. He will never forget them. And yet, the objections are not over. As we move into verse 24, we're reminded that the, the picture of the nations given here feels very different from Israel's experience, you remember. Israel's experience of the nations was like a lion that had ripped them from the land, their land and was seeking to devour them. And how do lions respond when you try to take their prey away from them? Is there anyone here who would like to volunteer to go down to the Louisville Zoo, feed the lions, and then try to take the food back? <laughs> that's what Israel felt like. They looked at their situation and said, we, are, we have been consumed by the nations and they are lions and no one can take us away from them. They're too strong. They said in, verses, in Isaiah 49, 24 through 53, they said, we are rejected and we are beyond rescue. That's what Israel says. We are rejected and we are beyond rescue. As I read this, the tone seems to change, especially in, in chapter 50. I, the, the doubts feel a little bit more accusatory. They feel a bit more faithless. God's people ask in verse 24, who's going to take them out of the paws of the hungry lion that is Babylon and, and who would rescue them from the tyrant that is, that is holding them captive? The Lord's answer is very simple, isn't it? He says, I will. I can do that. Why are you doubting my strength? I will deliver you. His response in verse 25 makes it clear that no one is too strong for the Lord. Did you see those, those questions in verse, in verse two I was thinking about actually of chapter 50? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem or have I no power to deliver? Again, that, this picture of the fact that God will contend and he will fight for his people. And in verse 26 of chapter 49, it's as if Babylon self-destructs. They start to consume themselves and drink their own blood. If we are in Christ, the same thing is true for us. There is no enemy so strong that the Lord cannot deliver us from it. There is no situation that he cannot rescue us from. What are you afraid of? What feels overwhelming? What feels like it's going to devour you? Maybe it's some sort of financial issue or a health crisis or a relational strife. What feels inescapable in your life? Is there a sin or a temptation that you just can't get over? Is there an issue at, at work that you don't think will ever get solved? Whatever it is, the Lord says that without question, he can deliver you if you will trust in him. And even deeper, when we think about Babylon and we think about the nation's we think about places like Haiti and Afghanistan and places where, where Christians are persecuted. We know that God can deliver them. And whatever the people of God face as a whole, the Lord is able to rescue us. And like Paul in 2 Timothy 4.17, we can say, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, if you're smart, you're wondering what I'm saying because you're saying, this sounds a lot like health, wealth, and prosperity, Andy. God can deliver you from any of your strife, anything that you're in trouble with. That 
We're going to experience the fullness of our salvation here and now. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so we should remember that deliverance may not be exactly what we expect. It may not be when we expect it. God delivers his people from Babylonian exile. There were people that died in Babylon and never saw deliverance. But we know that God has promised to preserve our eternal souls even through death. So the ultimate hope is that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? Death. And not even that is a defeat. <laughs> because death is deliverance out of the pain of this world into the everlasting joy of the Father's presence. So remember, our hope is not in an earthly city. Our hope is in an eternal and heavenly city. And God will deliver us from everything one day. Let me also say a word to you that heard the first part of the sermon and said, I'm too far gone for the Lord to save me. I've done too much. I've wandered too far. You who feel like the lion has already swallowed you. <laughs> I would say, turn to the Lord in faith and see what he does. <laughs> I would say, I, I dare you. I dare you to try trusting Jesus and see if he can't rescue you. Isaiah 50 verses 1 through 3 closes the section with what I would call some tough love, with some, some truth-telling. Israel seems to be saying to God that, that he had divorced them and sold them to their creditors. The accusations get personal, and so the Lord makes it clear that they have no proof of him cutting them off or selling them out in that kind of way. He says, you have not been divorced. You, you've not been sold. Rather, You've been disciplined because of your sin. In their despair, they seem to have forgotten that it was their sin, it was their rejection of the Lord that had brought them to this place of exile and difficulty. And we see in verse 2 that when God came to them and announced deliverance to them, there was no one there to listen, no one there to hear the word of the Lord. As we've said, life is, life is difficult. Life is heartbreaking. It can lead us to despair. It can blind us and keep us from seeing the goodness and the power and the faithfulness of God. But know this, we are not just broken by life. We're also sinful. We have doubted the goodness of God. We have pushed him away. The situations that lead us to despair are often of our own making. We say that the, the Lord has divorced us when we are the ones who have been unfaithful to him. We say that the Lord has rejected us when it's we who have rejected him. We say the Lord has forgotten us when it's we who go through our lives all the time as if God doesn't exist and then shake our fist at him when everything doesn't go exactly the way we want it to. We say the Lord has forsaken us when it's we who have ignored all of his commands and all of his instructions that are meant for our good. And so here the Lord is gentle, but he is firm. He listens to the, the complaints of his people and then it's as if he says, now, wait a minute, just give it a rest for a second. And let's look at the evidence. He says, show me the proof that I've forsaken you. Show me the divorce certificate. Let me see the receipts that show that I sold you out to creditors. Because there are none. You are not being cast off. You have never been cast off. You are being disciplined. And know this, the goal of discipline is always restoration. 
The goal of discipline is always restoration. Is God being firm with his people? Yes. Why? Because he loves them and he wants to restore them and he will not let them stay in their sin and he will not do let us stay in our sin either. God is clear then in, in verses 2 and 3 that no one is beyond saving. No one is beyond restoration. He describes his eternal power and his control over all creation, how he can dry up rivers, and then he invites us to faith in him. To, to trust him, to reject this idea that he has rejected us and to return to him in humility and in faith. How, how wise and how loving God is. In our despair, he comes to us and what does he do first? He paints a picture of his love and of his deep commitment to us. That's the first thing he does. And then when we need it the most, he firmly rebukes our lack of faith and he calls us to return to him. I don't know about you, but I need both words from the Lord most of the time. Sometimes I sing along with B.B. King. Nobody loves me but my mother. And she might be jiving too. <laughs> and I need to know that, that God's love is deeper than my mother's. God's love is a love that will never forsake me. And sometimes I... I feel rejected by the Lord and I need him to come to me and show me that it's my sin and my hard heartedness that have pushed him away. I need him to expose the ways that I have not listened to him and realize that the distance between us and my feelings of being forsaken and rejected are often the result of my own actions. And so we need to hear those words and we need to give those words to one another. As, as we come and we share our struggles and doubts with each other and we should, we should be open and honest. This should not be a place where you're afraid to not have it all together. This should not be a place where you're afraid to share your doubts and to say, I'm struggling to trust the Lord this week. I feel a little bit forgotten. I feel a little forsaken. I feel a little bit rejected. And we should be able to say those things to one another. And we need to respond to each other by describing the love of God. But you know what else we need to do sometimes? We need to look at the person who is feeling that and we need to say, hold up a minute. Is it God who has forgotten you? Is it God who has rejected you? Or have you turned your back on God a little bit? Are you walking away from him? And gently offer rebuke and then turn and say, God wants to restore in love. Now, before we close, I want to take note of two phrases we skipped over. One in Isaiah 49, 23, and one in 26. 49, 23, at the end of that verse, then... After you are saved, you will know that I am the Lord. For those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And verse 26, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Here's a theme that we've been seeing in the book of Isaiah. We said that the, the Lord's commitment to us and his power towards us is because of his deep love for us. But we also see here that it is because of his zeal and his passion for his own glory to fill the world with his glory as the waters cover the sea. God refuses, you remember, to let his name be defamed by his people or by anyone else. And so his faithfulness to we who are faithless and his commitment to we who are always leaving him is rooted also in the fact that he is working for the glory of his name in all the world. And he won't let people look at his people and say, their God forsook them. Their God has forgotten them. Their God has rejected them. No, he will not do that. And so he saves us. Why? Not because we're so wonderful. 
not because we're so good, but to show the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of his love and so that he might be honored and he might be glorified in this world. All he is to us, in fact, will one day lead to the whole earth singing his praises. In moments of doubt, brothers and sisters, rest in who God is to his people. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? It's so easy to forget the most important things. Rest, rest in who he has revealed himself to be in his word. Rest in the words of brothers and sisters as we encourage one another and tell each other the truth about the love of God and about who he is. Let me close with these words we sang earlier. Poor sinners, dejected with fear, disclose now your mind to the Lord. Tell him the doubts and the struggles you have. Because of this, no wrath on his brow he does wear, nor will he poor mourners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save. A sweet and a permanent peace he'll freely and faithfully give. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray for us. Father, your word is, is just what we need. Lord, it is a, a balm when we are wounded and we are broken. And we need to be bound up by your love. And it is a hammer that breaks up our stony hearts when we need to be rebuked. So Lord, do both in each of our hearts now. Help us to know that the depth of your love for us that is beyond knowledge. Help us to know the, the depth of our sin so that we would turn from it and turn to trust you. Lord, you will never forsake us. You will never forget us. In Christ, you will never reject us. And we are never too far gone for you to restore us. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.